and welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast. This is a podcast where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barakoff, and this month I'm thrilled to be chatting with Natasha Lester about her most recent novel, The Paris Secret. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to just say a huge thanks to you all. The writers, readers, publishers, you've really got behind the podcast before I've even released a single episode. So thank you. I really hope you like it and find it a useful part of your writing education. You can find more information about how to submit questions for the podcast on the website, writersbookclubpodcast.com. Everyone who submits a question gets a shout out on the podcast, but of course you can ask anonymously if you're the shy type. Just send me an email or use the form on the website. On the website, you'll also find the show notes and transcript for today's episode, along with upcoming guests, including our March book club pick. But there'll be more on that at the end of the show. So, Today's guest, Natasha Lester, has written seven novels and is the New York Times bestselling author of The Paris Seamstress, The French Photographer, and today's novel, The Paris Secret. Natasha is a former marketing executive for L'Oreal, where I believe she collected more lipsticks than she knew what to do with. When she's not writing, she loves collecting vintage fashion. Dior is a favorite, of course. Practicing the art of fashion illustration, learning about fashion history and traveling to Paris, although not this year or last, hopefully next year. Natasha lives with her husband and three children and two chickens in Perth, Western Australia. Now listen, because we're exploring so many aspects of Natasha's novel, The Paris Secret, there are spoilers in this interview. So if you don't want to know anything about the ending or some of the plot twists, it might be a good idea to go away, read the novel and come back to this episode when you're ready. But for the rest of you, you are in for a real treat. Natasha was incredibly generous with her insights and process. We talked about prologues and first lines and working with dual timelines and how to weave in all that pesky backstory and research. So without further ado, let's dive into this month's Writers Book Club with the delightful Natasha Lester. Welcome, Natasha Lester. Thank you so much for being the inaugural podcast guest on Writers Book Club. Oh, thank you so much for having me. As soon as you told me about this idea, I was just so excited and I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for letting me be the first guest. Oh, I'm so thrilled. You've always been such a generous member of the writing community. I learned how to use Scrivener from your blog post. Thank you very much. (laughs) Anyone who's listening, I highly recommend Natasha's blog. It's a font of much knowledge in the writing sphere. What does your writing life look like at the moment, Natasha? So we're in a kind of a fun phase at the moment where we're getting ready for the publication of the Riviera House on August the 31st. And so that means lots of book cover designs are coming through. Uh, We've just finalised the cover for the North American edition and it's just the most stunning cover. I couldn't be happier. The Australian one is coming along as well. So that's all the fun stuff. But I'm also... Usually I'm working on three books at a time, but so promoting one, editing one and writing another. So I've just submitted next year's book to my publisher. So the edit for that should come back in about a month, I would say. It depends on how bad it is. Like, And I've just started writing a first draft, very rough, for 2023 book. So, And then I'm juggling end of publicity for Paris Secret and starting to think about publicity for the Riviera House. First of all, it won't be bad. Second of all, (laughs) oh, to be in your head. I don't know how you compartmentalise all of that, but you've had a few years practice now, haven't you? Yes. And I think if they were all at the same phase, I think that would be much harder. But because they are all at very definitely different stages, I think that just makes it so much easier. You know, editing such a different mindset to first drafting, which is such a different mindset to publicity. So I think that really helps a lot. Yeah. And do you find that you use certain parts of the day for each of those different jobs? 
Yeah, pretty much. So really school hours nine till three is writing or editing. So I won't ever do an edit for a book and be writing a draft of a different book at the same time. I'll stop the draft and just focus on the edit for that month or whatever so that there isn't any kind of cross-influencing happening. And then I try to do all the admin and publicity stuff in the evening or on the weekend so that the writing work comes first and I can change my mindset. I guess I'm too tired to write at night, whereas admin and questionnaires and interviews and things are much easier. And not forgetting that you have a husband and three children as well who probably (laughs) want a little bit of your attention. (laughs) You have some demands. (laughs) Yes, yes, I, I hear you. So our listeners have really delivered and sent in some fantastic questions. So shall we dive in to the Paris secret? Yes, I can't wait. Yes, let's dive in. Our first question comes from Pamela Cook, who is an author that we both know and love. (laughs) Hi, Pam. Thanks for sending in the first question. Pam asks, this book has more of the main character's backstory than most of Natasha's books. Why is that? And how does she handle backstory? Natasha, it's a big question. And it's a very good question too, because Pam is absolutely right. Part of, there's about three chapters at the start of The Paris Secret that Sky, the main character's childhood, and it sort of explores her friendship with a young boy called Nicholas. And I've never written my character's childhoods before, but when I very first conceived of the idea for the book and the character of Sky, because my books always have kind of Uh, the main plot of the woman trying to do something unusual for her time in history. And then the subplot is usually a romance kind of subplot. I do start thinking about, well, what kind of romantic relationship would that be? And I don't know. And I try and mix that up a bit. You know, there are those typical kind of tropes of, you know, love at first sight or whatever. And just struck me that it would be quite fun to do a story about two people who met as kids and then fell in love later as adults. And so that was part of why I decided to delve into this beautiful, I hope, childhood friendship between Skye and Nicholas. And it's also there because I think, you know, Skye's pretty bohemian and wild for that time in history. And in fact, I was just talking about this on the weekend at a course I was teaching. Whenever your character is sort of uh, transgressive in terms of society's expectations, you have to make that believable so that the character doesn't appear anachronistic. And so it was really important for me to establish what Scar's childhood was like so that the reader could believe that she would become a female pilot, which at that time was totally transgressive. So, (laughs) So there was those two reasons that were really important to me to have that sort of childhood storyline in the book and because it was the first time I'd ever done it it was much longer (laughs) when I submitted it to my publisher because I had so much fun writing those scenes and I knew knew it was a bit slow and that I probably had gone a bit overboard but I always figure you know submit it and then you can work out what to cut later so so in fact that section probably lost about two chapters (laughs) Um, was a bit of cutting involved you know because yeah so it was really just for those reasons of wanting to write this particular love story in that particular way and needing to make Skye's character seem believable and authentic, given that she was a bit wild for her time. Yes. And given the fact that it is a dual narrative and also that there is so much going on with the war and the plot twists and all of that, I guess it would have been a little bit tricky to sort of weave in that childhood or those childhood scenes within the narrative because there was already so much going on, right? Yeah, there was way too much going on. In fact, I always say this was the book that nearly killed me because (laughs) there was far too much going on really for any one book. What makes it so wonderful? I think this is your best. It's just brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I love it too. And uh, like, I feel like I did pull it off in the end, but there were plenty of times during the writing up where I thought, oh my God, I've bitten off way more than I can chew. (laughs) 
So, yeah, but it's nice. I, I like challenging myself. I don't want to write the same book every time and I want to try something harder, something that stretches me as a writer so that I stay interested in what I'm doing. And so, you know, I guess also you know, going right back in time to my character's childhood was part of, you know, that, you know, something different. It was a challenge. How will I weave this in? How will I make backstory, which yes. in effect is interesting. Yeah. And also <laughs> yeah. I think by putting it into scenes, it brings it alive. It's, you know, the very definition of, of showing, not telling, isn't it? By having those childhood scenes as scenes. Yes. Rather than, you know, the character doing that thing where they pick up a photograph and they can't remember when. Exactly. Which is such a cliche. And it also means that, you know, when you are imparting sort of backstory to the backstory, which I am doing because it's we have to explain how mm. Nicholas comes to be in Cornwall. I always do that through dialogue and that makes it therefore showing and more interesting rather than just um, having a paragraph of narrative telling how Nicholas came to be in Cornwall. So mm. you'll find that a lot of that kind of information is always conveyed via dialogue and exchange of, of words. Yeah, I thought that was actually a, a really good example. If anybody is wondering how to get that sort of backstory across, I think it's in the first or second chapter. We have two examples there. First of all, where Nicola's aunt Fenella, is it? Yes. Is talking to Skye's mother, Vanessa, the wonderful Vanessa. And for the first time, we learn about what may have happened to Nicholas's father. And it's sort of, you know, they're speaking in front of the children. So as readers, we, we sort of understand that Nicholas's father has not had a good first war and something's happened to him there. And then the second way I think was really clever in which you did this was you, you have the two children because they don't know each other. And they're roaming around the Cornish, this beautiful Cornish cove, and they're having all these adventures and they go into the cave and it's dark and they're lying there and they sort of tell each other these stories. And it was such a beautiful image, but it was also a really wonderful device for telling the reader as well how the story of their families and their parents, and I thought that was really well done. It's a very good example, listeners, if you're looking how to weave in backstory and to look at the first couple of chapters of The Paris Secret. Oh, thank you. And I think also, you know, the other thing there is having it split over two scenes enables you to feed the backstory in, which I always like to do rather than to chuck in. And also every time there's backstory, it's serving some other purpose. So they're in the cave because the cave becomes a really important motif through the story and we see the cave come up a few more times in the story. And so you aren't just there to impart backstory, you're there to set up this motif, this place that's really special to them and that Sky will often remember and refer to as an adult. And even with the aunt and Vanessa, Sky's mother, you, you're getting just this short exchange. You get a very clear picture of the uptight Fenella who's you know very sort of downtrodden and quite hardly done by and having to take in this terrible sister and her son and you know she's so put upon and Skye's mother who's just very much let kids be kids and she's very much a free spirit so you're imparting or telling the reader what sort of characters these people are so you do that really well. Our second question comes via Instagram from Gemma. And Gemma's handle on Instagram is Reading for Keeps. Thank you for sending in your question, Gemma. The question is, for me, the amount of research involved in The Paris Secret was amazing. I guess I want to know more about that process. Where does Natasha start with her research? How does she fund it? How does she, <laughs> <laughs> does she find one piece of information that leads to another, etc.? And then we also had another question from Fiona Taylor at Fiona W. Taylor on Instagram along the same lines. I'd like to ask Natasha how much research she did for the Paris secret and did she do it before writing her first draft or during? So there you go. There's a meaty research question for you, Natasha. Um, I'm going to address the funding first so we can all <laughs> clear that up. <laughs> I open my purse and my credit card comes out. <laughs> um, so when a writer chooses to do research for their book, uh, the writer has to fund that because you don't have to do it. There's no obligation that your publisher is putting upon you to do the research. So it's entirely up to you whether you do or don't do it. Therefore, you have to pay for it yourself. However, you can claim your own travel expenses, of course, uh, as a tax deduction and keep all those receipts. So that kind of covers off that part of it. I mean, I will always say that 
on the ground location-based research is the most valuable research that you can do. So that would always be something I would prioritise when I was kind of, you know, budgeting my writing dollars, especially for people who are just starting out and haven't earned a lot of writing dollars yet. You know, even back when I was writing a kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, so that was my first historical before I had a contract with Hachette, I just went, no, I'm going to spend the money and I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to sit in the Columbia Medical School archives because I think that will make the book better. And I feel like all those small investments have paid off and I well and truly earned the money back because, you know, it made the books better. So more people read them. So we sold more books and so it was totally worthwhile for anyone who's considering that. Obviously, an investment, not an expense. Exactly. Definitely. So in terms of how I start with the research and whether one piece of information leads to another, um, pretty much just taught a three-hour workshop about this. But yes, that's essentially how it works. Because I write the first draft without having done much research, what I'll do in that first draft so that the story comes first, so that my imagination can run wild, so I'm not constrained by what the research tells me is possible, I put off most of the research until the end of the first draft. So during the first draft, all I will do is read a couple of books about the broad topics. So, for example, in The Paris Secret, I found a book that was about the experiences of the female pilots of the Air Transport Auxiliary, and given that's where Sky works, that was important. So I read that. So it was the perspective of a number of different women who the author had interviewed or read their memoirs of and had collated together. And so then... If you start with a generalist book like that, the next thing you do is you always go to the bibliography and you go through the bibliography and look at what other research sources are going to be important to you based on now you know the names of the other people in that organisation. So it's the same with the French photographer. I read a book about the experience of the female war correspondents and so I learned the names of the other war correspondents. And so then you go and look to see, well, did any of them write memoirs? And so in The Paris Secret, there were three, four key pilots who had written memoirs. So that was the next step. I found the name of the memoir in the bibliography, then went and purchased secondhand copies of the memoirs and read those. And so that's kind of how you research. It's a bit of a trail. Um, you always start off with the broad uh, sources and then the broad sources lead you to the more specific sources. So generally starting off with a secondary source, which is a book kind of written after the events, and that leads you to the primary sources, which are from the perspective of a person who experienced the events and are written, you know, around the time of the events. And they're obviously the most valuable kind of sources. So, and then from there, again, usually from the bibliography, I'll find archives that have documents. So many of these books about the air transport auxiliary reference the National Archives in Kew, which holds all the papers about the air transport auxiliary. So then obviously that was somewhere I needed to go. I went to Kew. I ordered all the documents I needed to look at online. So they were sitting there waiting for me before I got there. And then I spent my day just snapping photos. I don't uh, make any notes because I'm not going to waste that time on writing the notes. If I photograph everything, I can make the notes later. So that's kind of how that trail sort of works. And then in terms of Fiona's question, so I guess I've covered that off a little bit in terms of whether I did it before my first draft or during. I, I do a, a very small amount during and then the bulk of it once that first draft is finished. Then I take a whole month off writing and I spend that whole month researching, usually travelling, um, obviously not in the world of COVID. But that's really important for me because I am a pantser, not a plotter. So I don't really know what I'm writing until I've got to the end of the first draft. And if I was to research up front, I don't have a scope. I would research forever because I wouldn't know when to stop because I don't know what I need to put in the book. Whereas my first draft acts as my research blueprint. It defines my scope. I'm researching to flesh out the events and the people and the time that I have captured in that first draft. So it means I can be more efficient and focused and not waste time with my research. So that's how that kind of process works for me. And then, of course, it's all about going back into the book and using that research to enhance the story that's already there. And again, I talked about this in the course I ran on Saturday. It means that story always comes first. You know, sometimes read historical novels and you feel like you're just being taught something and the mm. authors being really didactic. And I feel like there's no danger of that happening because I've written the story first and then I'm just using the research to 
enhance the scenes that are already there to add detail and authenticity to those scenes. You know, I'm not going in uh, to just say, oh, here's an interesting piece of research. Now I'm going to craft a scene around that because I don't think story works like that, not for me anyway. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's what lends itself to the layering and the the intricacy of your stories as well. The, The layers of information in there are so beautifully woven in. I wanted to just talk about Chapter 5 because this is what stayed with me. The research that you'd obviously done about the delivery of the tiger moths to Scotland and the appalling conditions in which the women worked, which, of course, the men didn't have to work in. The men got all the, you know, the warm flying suits, etc. And the women had to fly using only their sight. They hardly had any instruments. It was the dead of winter and it was a freezing cold winter to the point where when they landed, they literally could not use their legs and unfortunately had to be helped out of the, the plane. By men. When I went back and reread the novel for this podcast, it really made me look at the emotion that you, that sort of research helped evoke. My emotions were aroused. They were indignation, first of all, <laughs> on behalf of those women. I was like, my God, they got back. They couldn't walk. They were frozen to death and they had to get out of these warm-ish togs and change back into skirts and stockings Mm. on the base you know so I was just like but also enormous empathy for these women so I just think for anyone listening Natasha's research she uses it in a way that also helps to evoke those emotions in the reader and I think that's something we don't really think about when we think about Mm -hmm. research we do think about you know going to archives and primary and secondary resources but then how you use it within the writing is also really important isn't it yeah I think so I think again that comes down to trying to as much as possible show the research so when we find out what are the dangers inherent in being a pilot with the ATA it's Pauline telling the other women that And they're hearing it for the first time like the reader is. So we are actually being placed as the reader in the same spot as the female pilots are. I'm holy shit, who's going to do that? (laughs) Like I'm not flying a plane with just my watch. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) So, you know, if again, if you just put it into the narrative, it becomes much more dilute and much less powerful and it allows you to kind of build the degree of danger because, those are the first dangers we hear when Pauline sets out the flying conditions. And then we see Sky experiencing those dangers when she's flying to Scotland and freezing her butt off mm-hmm. and then shot at by the Luftwaffe. You know, each incident is a little bit more dangerous and a little bit more risky and a little bit more scary than the next one. So it kind of ratchets the tension up. Yes. Whereas if you start with the big dangerous incident, then you've lost, you've already um, lost the tension. So yes. it's all about you know kind of layering and also you know when you have a great piece of information uh, research information like the fact that these women were made to fly to Scotland you want to then use that to develop character and so that's why you see you know Rosemary being in the shawls and the fur wraps to keep the women warm and and you see the grit of all of them that they just keep flying those planes back and forth, freezing their butts off, and they never once stop. So, again, you're using the research to develop character, which I think if, if it's only in there for research, it's got to come out. It has to do with something else. Yeah, I think that's what's referred to as an info dump, isn't it, when it's just yes. in there for research? <laughs> yeah, because you also used it to show tension, you know, because eventually the women sort of think, well, this isn't exactly how we want to live our lives. And so they eventually do go head to head with the powers that be. And I love that because there's just a sort of a microcosm of uh, resolution in that, isn't there, which I, which I think is very satisfying. Speaking of research, last year was the first year we haven't had the vicariously living through Natasha Lester's fabulous Instagram with, you know, visits to French Chateau (laughs) and beautiful English high teas. I know. On the cards for 21, are we thinking it might be a 22? Yeah, I think it might be a 22. Um, I had a fabulous trip planned for June, including a publicity tour of Norway, which I was going to (gasps) which was going to be, so no, that's all on the back burner and I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens and just, you know, being grateful that we're happy and healthy. I know, we are. No. Very <laughs> we can't yeah. complain. <laughs> the gorgeous French chateau and Riviera homes and English high tea. 
houses. We'll just have to wait another year. Our third question comes from the lovely Penelope Janu. Penelope Janu writer. She is quite an accomplished writer in her own right, but she's very much about the romance. So her question is, I'd like to know something of Natasha's process in respect to writing love stories. What comes first? I suspect it's the woman's individual story, but I'd like to know how the love story evolves or changes as the manuscript progresses. How did Natasha develop the love story between Skye and Nicholas in The Paris Secret? And by the way, my absolute favourite perfume, and it's been that way for decades, is Miss Dior. Over to you, Natasha. Well, I first, first of all need to say that I've been wearing Miss Dior for the last year as well, so excellent Lovely. take. I'm right with you on that one. So in terms of the love story, you're absolutely right. It is definitely the woman's individual story that comes first. The thing that always uh, sets me off on the path of writing a new book is thinking about a woman who's going to do this particular thing. And in this case, obviously, it was flying aeroplanes during the Second World War, as Sky does. But then very quickly thereafter, because all of my books do have this sort of love story subplot, I'm starting to think about, well, what's that going to be for this book? And again, trying to mix it up a bit. And so, you know, we kind of like next year's book is totally enemies to lovers. And I had so much fun with that. Like it's probably the best fun I've ever had, you know? And so, I mean, we, we say, oh, but those are tropes, but, and they are, but they're so useful because, you know, Pride and Prejudice was the first enemies to lovers and we still love that trope. So it's just these things that people can identify. So for this one, like I said, I always knew that Sky and Nicholas were going to be these very close childhood friends whose friendship never uh, evolved into romance, but you just know they love each other. And then they meet later in life and Nicholas is engaged. And I love the way Sky says, you're handsome. <laughs> it's been for so long and she sort of, that's that kind of moment of, oh, you're not exactly the childhood friend anymore. Yes, you're a handsome yeah. guy. <laughs> and I think, you know, it would be a bit like that. If you are so used to seeing someone as your childhood friend, then you see them as an adult yeah. and they are suddenly a man and quite different and, and processing that. And, of course, Sky processes everything aloud, so, of course, yes. it comes out of her mouth, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is highly embarrassing for her at the time. So in terms of how I develop that, so it's really against my writing the first draft and seeing what they want to do. So with this one, again, I had, I had a real problem with word counts. It was such a long book. And so initially when I submitted the manuscript to my publisher, Sky and Nicholas didn't have very many meetings as adults before they kind of realised they were in love with each other. So, which really put a lot of pressure on the childhood storyline to make it seem believable that the love would sort of come back relatively instantaneously. And I thought, no, that's not right. And I need to slow that adult falling in love down a bit and just either make the scenes that are there work harder or actually add in a whole new scene. And so... I added in, there's a scene, if you've read the book, you'll know the scene. It's where Nicholas comes to Hamble where Sky is working and he brings her a bag of oranges and he tells her he's going to take her out to dinner because Sky's been living on rations and Nicholas gets hot cooked meals for him because the male pilots get that. The female pilots don't, of course. So they go out for dinner to the pub and they have an opportunity to talk sort of one-on-one -on -one in a way that is quite hard when you're on an airbase with a lot of other people and you don't have a lot of private time. And it was also good because that scene enabled me. I had a, there's a scene that comes soon before that where Sky is flying an aeroplane. It's a big bomber. Sorry, it's a Spitfire. And she's flying it in the cloud and it's terrible weather and she can't see and this big four-engine bomber nearly lands on top of her in the sky. And it's quite a terrifying experience. And when I first wrote it, I was thinking, oh, it's just another flying scene and you have to be kind of careful. Obviously, she's a pilot, so you've got to have flying scenes, but if you have too many, you're really going to bore readers who aren't interested in flying scenes. But then that becomes a bonding moment for them at that dinner because Nicholas hears about it and he realises that Sky nearly died because a plane nearly landed on top of her. And they make this promise to each other at that dinner that they're not going to die. And the idea of Nicholas keep keeping promises and not breaking his word is, again, another motif that reoccurs throughout the book. And so it gave me another chance to really uh, pull that back into the story and, and bring Red's attention back to that. 
So it ended up being this great scene because it served so many purposes as well as being the critical scene, I think, where the reader really gets the, the strong idea that these two are in love with each other, even though they don't know it yet, and they're made for each other and that we totally want everything to work out well for them. Yeah. But I'm writing the book, so we know it might not. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Natasha, I know what you're referring to there. You did leave us hanging for a very long time, actually, when I was reading through, I thought, that is such a beautiful scene, but they still don't get together, do they, until, like, or do they? But, you know, it's, <laughs> no, yeah. it's they do. But it, it, you've put all these wonderful barriers to their relationship in. And that was really, like, I knew that, at, I mean, at that time, obviously, you know, if someone was engaged, you know, people didn't have affairs, they didn't cheat on their partners. That was really taboo and also um, it's not part of Skye's or Nicholas's character to do that. So if he was engaged, that wasn't going to happen. So therefore um, I had to respect that. And so that automatically, I guess, created a lot of those barriers that, you know, uh, when the reader discovers what's actually the story with the engagement, then that just makes it all the more torturous, I guess, which is kind of nice. Again, you're able to ratchet up that tension. And that's what we're always trying to do as writers. How can I make this more tense, more conflict, make the reader sit even further on the edge of their seat than they already are. And always ask the question, when will they kiss? (laughs) Luckily, we also have the contemporary story to keep the romance bubbling along as well. I loved also even just the introduction of the oranges, you know, Nicholas bringing the oranges and I think it might be after he leaves and Skye realises, hang on a sec, where did he get these oranges? There are no oranges in England. Is he going to France? Is he putting his life at risk? He promised he wouldn't die and yet he's obviously flying into enemy territory. So, again, just another element of tension that you brought in there, which is just great. It's very, you're very clever, Natasha. Oh, not really. No, it's honestly, I was saying this at a talk on Friday night. My subconscious knows exactly what it's doing and it is very intelligent. As for the rest of me, I'm just catching up to my subconscious all the time. <laughs> You will sometimes surprise when people ask questions and say, so what did you mean by this motif? Oh, well, yes, that motif. Oh, my God, what did I mean by that motif? Did I even know that I had that motif? That was a total accident, but I'm glad it came across like it was planned. (laughs) I know that one wasn't an accident, though. Now, we also had another question by Pamela, and I think a lot of listeners will be interested in this. How does Natasha write the dual timelines? Are they written separately and then threaded together, or does she write them concurrently? And how much fiddling does it take to get them right? Okay, to the second part of that question, the answer is a lot. I am rearranging the order of the scenes right up until the last minute. In fact, in the proof the second proofread of the Riviera house and not even the first proofread I was I deleted a whole scene like you're not you're not supposed to delete scenes in proofreads and it was just like no this has got to come out and luckily my publisher is so nice and they let me remove it so literally I'm fiddling right up until the end with that kind of stuff so I write them separately always the historical storyline first because that is the that's the meat of the story that's the key thing that's driving the story and then I write the contemporary storyline second and in fact it wasn't even until I'd started writing so I'd done the historical storyline I'd started writing the second the contemporary storyline and Kat the main character in that storyline is a fashion conservator but for the first quarter of that contemporary storyline she was something else entirely and then I stumbled across across the fashion conservator thing I was like oh my god she's got to be that so again rewriting as you're discovering things so I love Scrivener because I can literally write the whole historical thread, then write the whole contemporary thread and then look at how those things are woven in together. And a lot of that has to do with the motifs. And I think really when you're writing dual narratives or tri- triple narratives or whatever this one ended up being, the mo- those motifs are so important. So, for example, Nicholas has this pocket watch and that's quite a strong motif in the book and we see that recur in the historical storyline and in the contemporary storyline and you need those connections those things that tie one storyline to the next so that the reader isn't just lost and wondering how are these things related why am I suddenly jumping out of this storyline that I was quite happy with Sky and Nicholas and now I'm suddenly 
got to make and get to know this person called Cat. Like, what if I don't want to do that? So you've got to, you know, have those little pieces that pop up to make us connect back to the other storyline. So there will always be a number of those little motifs, like the digitans that that Sky smokes are another motif that become quite important. You know, if you're you're like a detective in reverse, you're scattering the clues rather than trying to track back what the clues mean. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes you don't actually know what you're doing. Like it it was literally accidents, sky smoking, digitans, and then being important, and then I was like, oh, I could use that. Good, Good job, subconscious. So, yeah, I would say that one of the biggest jobs is that threading and, you know, part of that is being aware of the word count. So... For me, those historical parts of the storyline are usually around 20,000 words and I don't really want them to be too much longer than that. And the contemporary storylines are always a bit shorter, but you want them to feel, you don't want them to feel too long. So you've got to make sure you're cutting away at a time that's tense enough that the reader's like, oh, no, I want to find out what happens. And you're not just kind of cutting away on a, you know, a weak moment and that you've got those motifs working, the word count for each part is okay. And that you're not, you know, you don't want to introduce the motif in one part and abandon it for three parts. It's always got to come back in the next part. So those kinds of things help with that structuring. Yeah. You do that on page 31 is when part one ends. So that's when we've got the childhood, the friendship between Nicholas and Skye. Skye and Liberty have to go and live in Paris. And on the day that Liberty turns 18, that's her Skye's sister. It's a real turning point in her life because she feels free to then go and live her life. And she's not leaving on a great note. There's a lot of unresolved tension and conflict there. And then boom, we're going to the contemporary story and Kat's story. So we're ready then, aren't we? Is that why you put that in there? Yeah, I think so. And initially that childhood storyline actually ended with that scene where Sky and Nicholas say farewell to each other in the cave and he goes to New York. And I didn't have that bit where she does go to Paris. And my amazing editor, Alex, said to me, I feel like because I had to do a lot of work on Liberty, we need to see what happens with Sky and Liberty in Paris. And she was absolutely right, of course. She's always right. So that kind of led into that. And and obviously because Liberty is such an important part of what happens in the end of the book, like you couldn't miss that bit out that is now in there in Paris. Otherwise, you know, the whole story kind of falls apart. So, So, again, I think where you leave a part signifies to the reader that that's important because you always leave on on something striking and so it alerts the reader to be to pay attention to that because that will become important later yeah and of course you want to be able to get back to their story and because you've you know elicited all this emotion we're really invested even in just those 30 pages we're very invested in sky she's such a great character and we really do want to find out what happens so we're keen to get back to her and liberty you know (laughs) of course she was this (laughs) nasty little child but probably also just a bit of a lonely little girl but we get to see her growing up as well and so that sets up the future tension between the two sisters as well which as you say becomes a really important part of the story Mm. next question is from carol handel carol sent me this via email thank you carol natasha i've read four of your books now loved them all Do you write in sequence or do you put bits of the story together as you write each one of them? I guess within, like within the historical storyline and within the contemporary storyline, I don't always necessarily start at the start because I don't really know what the start is. So I am writing a bit out of sequence, usually until I get to about 20,000 words and then I feel like I know what I'm doing. Okay, that's a lie. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know enough of what I'm doing to be able to then write in sequence. So it's not uncommon for that first 20,000 words to, to just be scenes created around snatches of dialogue I have in my head or ideas for scenes that I have in my head. You know, you just want to, in that first 20,000 words, you just want to get words on the page. So what's important is to write a scene. It doesn't matter where that scene is going to fall in the book, just get it down and you can work out later where it goes. So, so, I, so I do write like that probably up until about that point. That's really good advice. I mean, even though you say you're not a plotter, for somebody that is writing a novel and they just don't have any idea where to start plotting, the advice of just to start with a scene that excites you or interests you is a great way. And then sort of the plotting comes in later when you're deciding where to go. 
Exactly. My test is always you want to be more in love with your story at about 20,000 words than you were when you started. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, I think that's where you might want to ditch it and try something else. And so the way to fall more in love with it is to write all the scenes you want to write. Don't write the scene that you're scared of or don't really want to write or don't know how to write. Just write the ones that seem like they'll be fun to write and then you'll be much more enthusiastic at 20,000 words and you'll have the, the knowledge and the confidence to then write the hard scenes. Yeah. I remember talking to Hannah Ritchell once about that and she said it's a good idea to write a scene that you really want to write or that you're excited about if you're experiencing writer's block or if you're sitting down and you think, oh God, where am I up to? I don't know. I'm getting so confused. Just sit down, write a scene that you really want to write, even if it's, you know, going to be put much later in the novel. Just go where the passion lies. You yep. know that you wrote the last scene first. Exactly. <laughs> so just write it. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Now, prologues. Can we talk about prologues? Because yeah. The Paris Secret has a prologue. And I did check your other novels, and it's the first time you've used a prologue since your first historical novel, A Kiss for Mr. Fitzgerald. Now, I'm partial to a prologue. I like a prologue, but people seem very divided on them. Why did you begin this novel with a prologue and what purpose do you think a prologue serves? So you're right there. I have read lots of articles by agents and publishers saying we hate prologues, ban the prologue. But I think that's because often writers use the prologue to dump backstories. So it's like, well, I've got all this stuff that I really want the reader to know about my character but I can see it doesn't fit in those first couple of chapters, so I'm just going to put it all in the prologue. And that's obviously not the purpose of a prologue. So the purpose of a prologue is to arouse the reader's interest to asking why, how has that person come to be like that when I meet them at an earlier time, you know, a few chapters in, and they're not like that at all. So they want to, it again, raises the tension. So in the case of A Kiss to Mr Fitzgerald, which was where I used my first prologue, you know, Evie's, on the stage of the Big Cold Follies. And then we flick to the start of the book where she's embroidering in her home in Concord. Well, like, how the hell did that happen? And so in The Paris Secret, the prologue is Margot at Christian Dior's first showing being dressed in the iconic bar suit. And she is the model who um, shows the bar suit to the world. And then when we meet Margot a bit later, she is, Nicholas's fiance, and she's working at an airfield in England. And so again, we're like, okay, how the hell did that happen? So it's that, you know, how did that happen kind of question. And it just creates more tension. I love a prologue when you can do that. And I loved writing that prologue and, you know, talk about writing out of order. So it's the first scene in the book. I wrote that prologue after I'd finished the first draft. It's quite a, there's maybe, six scenes from Margot's point of view, like that prologue in the book. Um, mm. Maybe there's more. Um, and I wrote them all after the first draft. I just I literally had this vision or voice appear in my head one morning saying all those words in the prologue and I bolted into my office and I started writing down and I hand wrote out that prologue and typed it up and it, it's virtually unchanged and you get some scenes like that that just, literally come from the muse, fully fleshed out, fully formed, and you just go, thank you, muse, for being on my side every now and again. <laughs> Maybe it was Catherine Dior. Uh, yeah. Now, the first line is compelling. <laughs> <laughs> I can see your underwear is the first line. <laughs> was this always the first line? And how important is the first line and why? Yes, it was always the first line. In fact, if I had my notebook here, I could pick it up and show <laughs> you my handwritten scribble of I can see your underwear. I do find that I often have, I don't know what the right word is, visions sound a little bit too much. But Catherine again. Yeah, yeah. For want of a better word, let's call them visions, even that's way too much. Uh, visions of scenes suddenly appearing in my head and I could see this boy and this girl and the girl was upside down and I think she was hanging out of a tree in my initial conception and you know this boy says to her I can see your underwear and I'm like okay that's how the book is starting that there's no other way for this book to start and also um that line and that vision just gave me their characters literally instantaneously so I knew who they were from the moment I conceived of that line and I think first lines and first chapters are so important and that's probably where I would spend most of my time in just making sure you're capturing the reader 
from the outset and also, you know, from another perspective, which is I worry that this might sound a little bit contrived or something like that, but you re- what a really good first thing. So when you're doing a, a chapter reading at an event, it holds the audience's interest. You know, it's got to be short enough to fit into kind of less than five minutes. It's got to be engaging. It's got to be a good readable out loud scene too. And give an indication of what the whole book is about. Gee, it doesn't have to do much, does it? No. (laughs) So easy to write. (laughs) Easy to write. And, of course, there's a beautiful mirroring scene at the very end of the novel where an elderly, is this a spoiler? This is a spoiler. That's all right. (laughs) You were warned, people, where an elderly Nicholas whose memory is failing remembers the girl with the underwear. I think that's the bit that made me cry. Yeah, and I didn't have that when I wrote that first thing. I didn't know it was going to become something so important. But, again, I can't remember when exactly. It was sometime in the first draft the vision came and Mm -hmm. I was dashing off into my office to hand write out that scene as well. And I was like, oh, God, again, I love it when my subconscious knows what (laughs) I'm doing. (laughs) And it's another motif. We have the pocket watch, we have the guitars, and we have... The underwear. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I love it. So speaking of spoilers, we had a final question. Again from Pamela Cook. She has all the, uh, the curly questions for us today. <laughs> In the final scene of the novel, Sky reunited with Nicholas, but his memory has faded and there's only a glimmer of recognition. After all that happened to them, it's a poignant ending for these two former lovers. Were you tempted to give them a happily ever after? And why did you decide to end the story in such a bittersweet way? It's not because I'm mean, despite what many readers might think. (laughs) I think, and I remember having to talk about this a lot in The French Photographer, because there were certainly a number of readers who weren't happy with the way that ended more so than The Paris Secret. I think when you're writing a book in which three women go to Ravensbrück concentration camp and suffer unendurably and unimaginably, it becomes very callous to just throw in a happy ending for everyone. It's almost, to me, it feels almost disrespectful because in reality, so many of those women didn't have happy endings. You know, they had really hard lives after Ravensbrook. So I was never really tempted to make it fully happy, but I was a little scarred by some of the feedback from the French photographer. So I knew I was going to make it a little happier than the ending of the French photographer or the Paris orphan, depending on which country you're in. And like, I feel like, and also they're really quite old by then. So in reality, for them to even be alive is a massive achievement. <laughs> really? <laughs> so they got, they're alive, they see each other. Like there's plenty of boxes that are being ticked I off. I think there. so too. And I feel like for them to be completely physically and mentally intact at their age after everything they've been through really tips mm. us over into the realm of being unrealistic and unbelievable and I, I didn't want to go there. And I think the happily ever after they had was very sweet and just so beautifully written. Yeah. And that's why, again, it's kind of good to have the contemporary storyline because they get to have, so there is a happy ending. Kat and Elliot ended up happy. And I think, you know, for me, when Skye is there holding Nicholas's hand, she's happy. That's more than she ever expected to have. Okay. Last question from me. To show listeners how much can change between a first and final draft, do you have something you can share in the Paris secret that was improved by the addition or the layering of dialogue or a description or the stripping back of something? Usually for those questions, I can talk about cutting because I do a lot of cutting. I do tend to now be an overwriter, which is very different to how I was when I very first started writing, where I underwrote everything. So we were talking about opening scenes earlier. And in fact, the historical storyline, once Sky is an adult, of the Paris secret opens where skies have a lunch in Paris that turns into dinner in Paris that turns to an all-nighter in Paris because she's got her own plane so she can fly back and forth. And that was not the first scene of the historical storyline until sometime deep into the structural edit. I had two other scenes, in fact. Sky wasn't in Paris. So there was one scene where she was teaching men to fly as part of a civilian uh, pilot training scheme. She was an instructor in that civilian pilot training scheme, which she still is in the book, but we just don't see that. And she 
walking through this flying club and a flying club is a very male domain and she's got her beloved um, trousers, sweater and cerulean scarf on and we see the way the men in the flying club treat her and then she does this handstand on the wing of the aeroplane that she takes up just to basically give them the finger. And then there's another scene after that where she's doing stunts in the flying circus where she makes her money. And so a lot of that showed us, you know, Sky's kind of devil-may-care attitude, foolhardiness, some might call it, the attitude of uh, men and society to female pilots at the time. So it was setting up a lot of backstory that was really important for the reader to know, but I was taking way too long with it and way too long to then get her to the air transport auxiliary and it was just like okay you just need to do that so much more succinctly and quickly and also Paris is a really fun place to start a book let's go to Paris <laughs> so I was literally that thinking I was like okay we're just gonna plan she can fly to Paris and also putting her into Paris enabled me to set up the global context of what was happening at the time that, you know, war is literally on the doorstep. So it actually worked better from that perspective too. And, you know, we see in dialogue, she's talking with Rose, her friend, who's also a pilot and Valentin, a gorgeous Parisian man. And we get an appreciation for the fact that she's teaching these men to fly, that the um, flying establishment thinks that she's a risk taker. And then as she's leaving Paris, she does her handstand stunt on the plane anyway. So we see all of those things in the space of like half a chapter rather than two really long chapters. So what I wanted to kind of really highlight there was, you know, we hear all the time, show, don't tell, but there is actually such a thing as too much showing and not enough telling. And sometimes and actually, I hate show, don't tell. It's show and tell, but know when to do each. You know, narrative summary is really effective for pace and you need to use it. You can't show everything. So it's being selective about what you're showing and how much you're showing and balancing that out with a bit of telling or narrative summary. And that was a lesson I had to remind myself of in deleting those two things and writing a whole new scene that there was a... Uh, a much more engaging way to pull readers into Sky as an adult. Yeah, no, you, d- you did a great job of that because it would have been a very long war if we had have shown. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Actually, I realised that we just had one more question and it was from you. Oh, the plot twist question. Yes. You said in your Instagram feed, join us on the Writers Book Club podcast, you could ask me questions such as, how did you plot out the twist in the book? So would you like to answer your own question? I would. And I would like to say that I did not plot it out one thing. (laughs) So obviously this is massive spoilers. So if you haven't read the book, you really need to turn it off right now and come back when you've read. So I have warned you. So I knew that... Cat's grandmother Margot, I knew I wanted her to be Sky, but I didn't know whether I was going to be able to pull that off. I didn't know whether that's how the book could pan out. I knew it had to be either Margot, Liberty, or Sky. It could be any one of those three women. And so I just, again, like do what I always do, just write and see what happens. And so there's a scene about halfway through, I think it's like the midpoint, where Kat and Elliot go to Skye's old family home in Cornwall. They go walking across the fields. Kat climbs onto a wall in the same way Skye did when she was younger and she falls off into the gardens on the other side. And this old woman appears and she tells Kat that her name is Margot Jordan. And that's the same name as Kat's grandmother who lives in Australia. And Kat is obviously freaking out at this point because then she says the same line to Kat that her own grandmother had said to her, I never thought anyone would come looking for Margot Jordan. And I wrote that scene with this old woman who I'd never imagined would be in the story. And I was like, oh, God, I'm a genius. This is so good. Um, and I'm saying that jokingly because occasionally you need to feel like you're a genius when you're writing. Absolutely. You can keep writing through the really hard parts. And that was one of those moments where I was definitely patting myself on the back. (laughs) So that just opened up a whole lot of new possibilities for me for the book. But still at that point, I didn't know 
was that the Liberty or Sky or Margot? Which one was she? Which one was Kat's grandmother? Again, I just had to write. And what I often do uh, with all of my books is I get to about three quarters of the way through and I don't really know how to get to the end. I still haven't worked it out. And so I just stop there and go back and write the second draft. And then usually by the time I get to the second or third draft, I can then, I get a little bit closer in the second. And then by the third, I get all the way there. So so it wasn't really until a couple of drafts down the track that I knew, okay, Kat's grandmother was Sky, and then I could make it work and the way I wanted it to. So mm-hmm. that was quite nice. So no, I didn't plot it out. It was blind fluke. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you really have the reader going because you're like, there, there are two Margot Jordans. Like you really don't know. You keep us stringing us along the whole time right up until the end. It's just fantastic. Congratulations. It's been a huge success. How far have Sky and Nicholas and Liberty travelled? They've gone to many countries, have they not? They have, and they're going to more and more countries all the time. In January alone, I had five new translation offers come through, which was like, wow, five in one month is fantastic. Spain, for the first time, I've never had a Spanish translation before, so that's really exciting. All through through Europe, really. My uh, Scandinavian readers are some of my favourites because they just seem to love the book. So, of course, I love them. And in fact, I've just got two boxes of books that have arrived today, one from Denmark and one from Sweden with the translations of the Parasite. So it's just so nice to see those things coming through. (laughs) It is lovely seeing all the different covers. I love it when you put up the different covers in all the different languages. It's so amazing how many countries decide to use a different cover as well. Yeah, it is. You know, I'd love to be able to sit down and read one of the translations and find out how close it is to the truth. Yeah, Unless it's in French, I'm never going to be able to do that. It's the only other language I speak. So oh, we'll just have to assume that they've done a fabulous yeah. job. They love it so much. And so you have a new book coming out in 2021? I do. I do. So it's called The Riviera House and it's set in France during the Second World War, largely. The contemporary storyline is set fully in the French Riviera, which was immense fun to research and it's about a real life heroine called Rose Belland who worked in a Parisian museum called the Jeu de Pomme during the Second World War and as the Nazis stole every single twerk held by a private Jewish art collector they sent them off to the Jeu de Pomme to be catalogued photographed and then transported to Adolf Hitler for his Führer Museum and Hermann Goring for his private collection at his home Karen Hall. Rose pretended not to speak German, but she did. So she recorded every artwork that entered the museum and where it was sent to, so that after the war, tens of thousands of artworks could be restituted to their rightful owners. She was amazing, and I adored writing about her um, in this book. So I hope that, you know, come August, everyone goes and grabs a copy of it. Definitely. That sounds absolutely fantastic, Natasha. I can't wait to read that one. Hey, listen, thank you so much for being the inaugural guest on Writers Book Club podcast. I'm oh, so grateful. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so fun to actually be able to talk about these questions in detail because if someone asks a question like this at an event of course you can't answer it because half the people in the room haven't read the book and they're all going no 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 spoilers so um it's great being able to you know dive deep and discover things about my own writing that I hadn't really thought about (laughs) (laughs) underwear and pocket watches and oranges and all sorts of things thanks again and um I hope we'll catch up soon and good luck with the Riviera House oh thank you so much Michelle for having me Wow, lots of great stuff in there. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Natasha take an in-depth look at the writing of The Paris Secret. I sure did. As I mentioned in the interview, Natasha's blog is a really fantastic resource. I highly recommend you check it out. She has posts on first drafting, editing, uh, Scrivener, which saved me, research, and so much more. So jump onto her website, natashalester.com.au and look under diary in the menu. And while you're at it, Natasha told me after the interview that her newsletter is coming out on the 4th of March. So it's definitely worth signing up for that. Now to announce our March book club pick. We will be chatting with Australian author Kylie Ladd about her novel, The Way Back. I read this quite a few years ago and absolutely loved it. 
The Way Back is about a family who are dealing with the unimaginable horror of a missing child. 13-year-old Charlie goes out for a ride on her pony one day and does not return. Four months later, long after the police and the SES and all the emergency services have called off the search, Charlie's found wandering, injured and filthy, miles from where she was last seen. The novel then tracks how Charlie and her family deal with the aftermath. It's a really moving, heartbreaking story and, of course, beautifully written in Kylie's trademark style. Now, I chose this novel because it's not only a psychologically gripping family drama, but it has six very distinct points of view, which is quite a few. So I'm really keen to talk to Kylie about how she managed that. Also, Kylie has a PhD in neuropsychology and still works in the field. So she brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to the psychology of her characters. I think knowing why our characters do what they do is a really important part of creating characters that are believable and relatable and, you know, evoke emotion in the reader. So I reckon Kylie will give us some brilliant insights into that. She has six books under her belt and I can't wait to talk with her about all things writing. Now we have three weeks to read The Way Back and think of all the questions we'd like to ask Kylie. You can find links to buy both the paperback and the ebook versions of The Way Back on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And you can also leave your questions via the form on the website or pop them on the Instagram or Facebook under any of the posts. You can also DM me anytime up until the 21st of March. So that's your deadline. Three weeks to read this fabulous book and come up with all your questions. I really look forward to reading out your questions on the next podcast and giving you a shout out. Thank you so much for listening to Writers Book Club podcast today. You can find all the show notes and a transcript of today's interview at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And if you like what you hear so far, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. This podcast was recorded on the beautiful lands of the Garingai people of the Eora Nation. Have a great week, happy writing, and I'll see you next month on the podcast. <laughs>